Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Pottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to today's episode. You know, you've heard us talk so much about soil health principles, and today we're going to focus on the last of those principles, livestock integration. This fifth principle describes the synergistic role between plants, animals, and soil. Livestock are an important part of that soil health, and today we'll explore the journey Botten's Family Farms and their livestock team have taken to integrate livestock in a regenerative system. This is a learning experience, and it's not sugar-coated. It's a real discussion of the challenges and opportunities presented when integrating livestock back onto the land. We welcome today Ryan J.R. Jenkins, Austin Collins, and Austin Taylor to the podcast. They represent the livestock team, and they, along with Monty, are going to walk us through this journey. So welcome, guys. It's great to have you here today. Monty, we'll have you start off our conversation today and introduce the guys. All right, Kim, and I'm excited because we've got everybody in studio today. So this is this is a first. Normally, we've got people from all over the country that that come in via Zoom or something else, so it's kind of fun to make this all happen face-to-face. Yeah, so, it sure is. You know, livestock's part of our soil health journey, and when we looked at it, we've been no-tillers for a long time and integrating nutrient management with no-till, which is basically the, the foundation of the Power to Grow program. And then after that, we began uh, investigating cover crops, essentially when I started uh, moving my transition back from California to Illinois, and we worked on ways to plant cover crops with the right equipment, the right mixes, and those kind of things adapted to our local geography, really as a learning tool for how would we help farmers across the country implement that on their farms. So we've always kind of been a test subject, a guinea pig at our farm to help other farmers. Well, lo and behold, I had one of our landlords who used to have livestock uh, years ago. He said, boy, you've got all that beautiful looking cover crop. Why don't you cut that or bale it and, or feed it somehow? And that just kind of stood in the back of my mind. Another landlord also was a longtime livestock guy. He's like, boy, that sure makes some great feed. So come along, January of 2016 was the uh, winter of Gabe Brown. Okay, so I'd heard a lot about Gabe Brown. You know, he's kind of on the Internet uh, a lot. And I'd seen a few of these things, knew his name, but I'd never really hear him, heard him speak in person. It seems like I always missed him, whatever conference he was at. But uh, I got a double dose of Gabe Brown that year. So first I heard him at the National No-Till Conference. And then about two or three weeks later, I went to No-Till on the Plains, and he was there too. He was the main speaker at both. And for sometimes, I don't know about you who, who are listening to this, but you got to hear things a couple times before it soaks in. But I had that three-week three rumination period there that allowed me to think a little bit about what he had to say. And I knew if he had 11% organic matter, in North Dakota, that he had to be doing something right to make that happen. Now, I know he doesn't have the UV light up there. I know he doesn't have the super hot temperatures like other parts of the country, but he has a 90-day growing season, okay? 
So how do you capture that much carbon in 90 days and put it in your soil to move it from 2% to 11%? Something is going on. So sometimes you go to conferences and you hear people talk and you wonder, okay, is this true or is this a bunch of hooey? And there was enough exciting things that he was doing and examples he was sharing. I knew I just had to go. So any good husband would, for their wife's birthday, say, hey, honey, how about we go to South Dakota and North Dakota for your birthday, right? It's the Homer Simpson birthday present, Oh, right? yes. So we went up to see several different people up there. Our first stop was with Dr. Beck in uh, Pierre, South Dakota, went to Dakota Lakes Research Farm, got to see that, got to meet Dwayne. Had a great time there. We went to the Black Hills. Okay, so she did get a little little vacationing in. But then we, we finished it with Gabe and Paul Brown at their, their place. And when our drive back home, I had a headache. That's where I say I knew we had to do what we came known as Project Moo. Okay, so that's that was the beginning of it. And then uh, that fall, we seeded some uh, triticale, some forage triticale in place of just plain old cereal rye because that 23 acres of forage triticale, I was going to figure out some way to graze that somehow. And uh, we put it in the ground, and then the hunt was on. How do we, how do we start bringing livestock back to our land? Uh, the following spring, we got some uh, Herefords from Blazers there in Reynolds, and uh, Hereford Steers brought them in, and Ryan at the farm, and I basically started fencing and uh, figuring out how to move them, how to make water, because we had no resources at all. We had no fence, no water. We'll get into that a little bit more. But that was the beginnings of it, is we did it for soil health, because everything that we'd seen so far is no-till gets you one, one step, cover crop gets you two steps in organic carbon, but integrating livestock gets you four steps. So that's what we wanted to do, is uh, really uh, looking at what Gabe Brown had done how do I make that work on a farm in Illinois? But within the larger context, how do we help farmers from Montana, Kansas, Colorado, California, how do we help those farmers adopt these practices within their local context? So that's what it's about, is bringing livestock back to the land. And I'm excited to share what we've learned, especially with the, the guys here, uh, talk about what we do on a daily basis. That's great, Monty. I, I think it's important to hear the history of how you got here. It wasn't an overnight decision. And we spoke with Steve Groff a couple of weeks ago, and he said, who would have thought that Monty Bottens, the Illinois farmer, would be running livestock back on his land? So I thought we'd just get started with each of the guys. So JR, do you want to start us off with how did you get into agriculture? Have you always been in ag? What kind of brought you to this spot? Well, I have not always been an egg. I grew up in town and with a minimal exposure to livestock. Uh, kind of rode horses a little bit when I was a kid, but that was it. And it wasn't until about exactly 10 years ago that uh, I got a taste of it. Guy asked me to work on the farm, and I haven't done anything more than just maybe square bale in a summer or something like that, and that was about it. And I just kept wanting more, and there wasn't a whole lot on the livestock thing, side of things to do, but there was a night or weekend. I sure as heck was there and trying to figure it out. And it was just over time, just can't get enough and bite off more. And, you know, if you really like something, I kept surrounding myself with it. So it kind of grew over time and more experience. And next thing I know, I'm raising all different species I never had. So I thought it was always just going to be cattle. And come to find out now we're pigs, chicken, sheep, and gosh knows what else is to come in the future. So. <laughs> well, a little bit of your background, too. Um, you know, you had a friend that you worked with that you lost mm -hmm. an unfortunate accident and mm -hmm. you guys were, were doing 
grazing through, mm-hmm. you know, heavily wooded areas. And talk a little bit about that experience and, and you know, using dogs and you were rotating and, and those kind of things. So this wasn't foreign to you and, and maybe share a little bit about how we first met. So yeah, we were grazing silvo pasture before we even knew what that word meant. We were trying to find places to graze that nobody else wanted, essentially. And my buddy owned a custom fencing business and I helped out with that. And that's one of the skill sets we had, and we didn't have to worry about if there's fencing on the property. And then, so between horseback and dogs, we had to use them to get around in all these tight places because you, unless you weren't going to get there by pickup truck or four wheeler. And we were rotating around and we were doing all grass fed up, and then they sold the wing calves. So uh, we were doing a lot of what we're doing here, and you know, at the starting stages. So you know, not assisting any calving or anything like that, especially expecting mom to bring the calf to wean unassisted. And, you know, I was just blown away that we don't need a barn. We don't need a feed wagon, manure spreader, all this equipment. I mean, you know, just some good livestock and a few good animals to trust. And, you know, you could get get the job done uh, with a little bit of electric fence. So moving on there, the accident happened and moved on, and I kind of had to take a little bit to figure out where we were going, but then I decided to keep going with that custom fencing company. And I was putting in barbed wire, woven wire, and to say my hatred for that would be understated. I just never understood why people want to do it. And then I got a phone call from Ryan. Uh, or no, it was you, because it's a California number. I'm like, who is this? And uh, he call up and say we're interested in some fence and I was like well what kind of fence and he said high tensile I was like you have my attention finally somebody's talking some sense around here we can <laughs> we can go further with this so then I showed up there and you know we fenced in the bull pasture and I got pretty efficient with that and that was a year mm-hmm. and then about a year later I was kind of thinking I was actually watching videos at the farm and Grateful Grays and everybody was sharing on Facebook and it just kept eating at me and I think it was one with Alan Williams that I just like see there's more I mean we don't have the cattle don't have to be belly deep in a feedlot. And then I was just like, so it kept clicking. And I just remember sitting in a grain cart during harvest, and I finally called Monty up and said, I know you're pretty well connected. Do you know anybody around the United States that have me on these type of operations? I got a little experience, and he, let me call you back. And there's a click. And I apparently he was calling Robin or something like that, because he called me back, goes, talk to the wife. What would you think about staying a little closer to home? I'm like, Sure, great. I wasn't going to call you up and say, give me a job. So, yeah, let's talk. So we did interviews, and it's turned into a great relationship. I love it here, and uh, Melissa and I are very happy, and it's a great team to work for. So that's kind of how it all made it to today. Well, and starting from scratch is definitely an understatement, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, when, when I was a kid, we took out all the fences that we had. We took down all the barns, you know, all the house sites and wells, we got rid of them because, you know, you didn't need that. You had to farm corn through it. So we, re- we literally started with nothing. And uh, the fencing and the water installs still continue, but we, we've managed to, over time, come up with everything on a mobile basis. Mm-hmm. So now that, that bull pasture, I will say, that, that thing is a, is a work of art. Uh, I don't think anything will get out of it, that's for sure, at least for the next 30 years. It's, uh, it's constructed like a brick wall. So... But anyway, it's, uh, it's been a good start, and, and JR is our livestock team leader and in charge of the, the day-to-day management of, of our team and, and figuring out what do we deem to do next. And like he was alluding to with the, the four different livestock groups that we have, or now five, um, 
it, it requires a lot of management. So what you give up in, like you were saying, tractors, spreaders, feeders, you that's one cost that you don't have. I wouldn't call that giving up, by the way. Right. <laughs> but I mean... It, <laughs> Pretty happy not to have that. Yeah, you don't have to I don't to like to it. wrench on things a whole lot if I don't have to. We so. don't have a lot of frozen U-joints on feed wagons yeah. in the winter, so that's Winter time nice. is not for sitting underneath the tractor, <laughs> thankfully. But one thing you do have to spend time on is planning. Mm-hmm. And thinking and and really thinking through stuff because it's not just oh we're we're gonna need a little more corn silage this year just go ahead and chop twenty more acres you know it's what do we need for hay what do we need to buy right now for hay this winter and what's our stockpile resources going to look like to make sure we have what we need at the right balance ration so yeah anyway it's it's been with, a it's been an interesting and aggressively journey. growing so you know it's not like oh we had this much last year we'll just grab the same amount this year and be no it's yeah not as simple as that either so <laughs> a lot of thinking about next year that's for sure well while we got a chance here i'd like to go ahead and introduce so uh, we we also have two other folks here in in the office uh, with us today and i'm going to introduce to you austin except for they're both named Austin. So we have, we refer to them as the Austins. It's great. Um, Austin Collins, you've been uh, started with us a, a little bit ago, um, Blackhawk East student. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family's background, your background, and what drew you to us in working with us on the livestock team. So I grew up on a little 40-acre farm outside of Kiwani, Illinois, and we've always had horses. That's That's been our thing. Mom, has been in the horse business for as long as I can remember. I've been uh, going in the the back of the truck for the last 19 years with her. So In high school, I had never any idea that I wanted to be in ag. Uh, I had taken biology classes and math classes, and I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know what I was thinking there, but between my junior and senior year, I had visited a couple of farms. My dad got a new job at a farm in Toulon, and also my cousin married a guy who has cattle. So from those experiences, I realized that I liked agriculture. It's something that I was interested in. I wanted to learn more, basically, is what happened. So senior year, I took as many ag classes as possible. I took vet tech, horticulture, ag business, and I joined FFA. I became the vice president. That was interesting. I did not expect that was going to happen. but So through that, I went to a bunch of FFA events where I got to experience and, and learn other people's stories of how they're in ag. Uh, livestock teams, I didn't even know that was a thing when I was in high school. Judging livestock, I had no clue, but I got to partake in those experiences, and I'm glad. So at the end of my senior year, I realized that I had a great opportunity to go to this college, Blackhawk College, where I'm going to now, because not very many people have an opportunity to go to a a community college that offers such a great ag program. So BHE has a lot of great professors. They just offer a lot. Well, and you've really been able to focus what you're learning on the farm with some of the study that you've done as well, right? You see some maybe challenges or things where you learn, you're kind of learning one way. And- I will say a big difference between where I work now for Grateful Grays and Bottons, between ag classes at BHE, they don't teach anything about rotational grazing. So I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, with even though you grew up on a, a family acreage there with horses and those kind of things, you didn't have that 
well, dad has done it this way and grandpa's done it this way, so I have to do it this way, right? I mean, so you're able to, you start with a clean slate, and, and that applies to all, all three of you guys, but you start with a clean slate, so then as you're, you know, in classes and labs, uh, which is farm visits and such at college, you can see one way of doing things, and then every day when you're working for us, you can see another way of doing things. And, you know, fencing through the woods, which you've been doing this last week, getting poison ivy and poison oak is one of the drawbacks to what we do, right? You know, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's always good with bad. I mean, every, every production paradigm has, has differences. But what I think's neat is Blackhawk East um, that Austin was referring to is, is a great local community college that we have. Mm-hmm. And for a two-year school, it, it's the top, uh, judging team and and top in equine and and top in many livestock aspects in the nation, so um, they go up against four year colleges all the time and win. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an amazing program. And then out of that, um, you know, ag students can kind of basically take your pick of what what four year school you want to go on to because it it does have a great reputation. So you know, Gabe Brown talks about what is your unfair advantage. Okay, so where Gabe Brown is at. His unfair advantage is $500 to $2,000 farmland, okay? Well, we don't have that unfair advantage in the Corn Belt here. You know, ours is $10,000 an acre farmland. So, But one of our unfair advantages is being able to partner with Blackhawk East. So we've had other students from Blackhawk East be a part of it. And, uh, you know, we look at using their team for, you know, judging and also uh, meat scoring and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been great. And final thing, you talked about your ambassadorship that you do there with the ag community at campus at Blackhawk East. It's going to be a busy year this year, I think. I am the president of the collegiate level of the Henry County Farm Bureau, president of Circle K, and the student ambassador. Basically, we're a group chosen to represent the school, and we give tours to um, incoming students or people who just want to take a look at the campus. Austin, on our our farm, when you started out, you started out part-time as a college student, and we're basically helping us on weekend uh, doing the moves because we have to move the cattle and sheep and all the groups of animals every day on a schedule and not only does he work with the livestock team he's been helping us out during the increased order volume here at the grateful graze side so he's progressed from you know moving to groups and those kind of things to helping out with uh, fencing and which is really an art to to figure out how to do it right and uh, we've made as a team made some amazing progress this year on how we can roll into a fenceless farm and in three days have a complete perimeter up and everything set and in one day have it pulled and plant the next day so it's pretty pretty fascinating. We've done that twice now this spring, and uh, I'm pretty proud of how we did it. Now we, we're all sore at the end of the day, but <laughs> we can get it done. Thanks, Austin Collins. I, I appreciate that. Now I want to introduce Austin Taylor, AT and AC. We, we try to try to keep them keep them separate here so we know what's going on. Uh, Austin Taylor joined our team here recently. He's our newest addition and certainly self-proclaimed our funniest addition. Anyway, here we'll um, we'll introduce Austin. So similar to JR, I grew up in town. My great-grandfather farmed. Nobody else in the family wanted to pick up on the the family business. So when my great-grandfather passed away, it kind of pursued me to want to get into agriculture. And I was 11 at the time, so 
there was no way I could just pick up and, and uh, take over. So I just I pursued to learn as much as I could about the business. Uh, joined FFA when I was a freshman all the way up through my senior year. Did a lot of different competitions with livestock judging and tried a little soil judging, but uh, <laughs> learned that I wasn't, wasn't too good at it. <laughs> But uh, but then I went into to the more conventional style of farming after high school, and I worked for a guy that had feedlots, and we had uh, confinement hogs, and so I, I spent about four to five years, you know, working all that, and life was good, and and I thought that I knew everything, and I ran into Jr. at a wedding, and he was gave me this speech about what he was doing over in Illinois at Bottens, and uh, it just kind of kind of interested me that there's a different way to be doing this whole cattle deal. And so I came over and, and took a little tour around, went home, was thinking about it a lot, and decided, you know, this this is something that, that I could see myself doing. It's the way that you can run cattle and sheep and not have to have all this equipment, not spend all this time moving manure, moving feed around. So here I am. And it's I, been good. <laughs> it's been good, yeah. It's fascinating that, you know, JR was able to persuade you into this. And, you know, over time, we've kind of learned who's best at what and, and how we should uh, make things happen on a daily basis, right? Because when you start from scratch, you have no idea. It's a, it's a blank piece of paper. So Austin uh, Taylor is great with the daily moves uh, during the week, essentially. Then we rotate between uh, the three of us on the weekend. But, yeah, every day you, you go out, walk us through a day of what you're doing at the ranch and right now it's kind of nice because everything's in well mostly in one spot and one's in another but yeah. you know talk about now or, or throughout different parts of the year what you do on a daily basis to make essentially livestock integration a, a reality so usually i start my day off with our chickens we have our meat birds and then we have our layers our meat birds are in a hoop barn that gets moved every day and you know, we got a winch system that that pulls it then we we have egg mobiles, which are a smaller livestock trailer that we've converted into uh, housing chickens. And uh, it has on-site water and uh, on-site feed on these so that they can move every day and we don't have to jungle around with moving, you know, a water source for them and a feed source for them. Then we have our, our cattle right now, our sure. summer pasture, yeah. yeah. It's the first year we've had it, so <laughs> we, we don't know what to call it just yet <laughs> because it's kind of nice to have it. And then... We just got hogs, too, that we are putting through our timbers on, uh, on our 226 ranch. So they've, they're, they're kind of new to all of us. And, and tomorrow's the day. Yeah, tomorrow's yeah, the so day. They've been kind of in the nursery phase, and while we've been building out fence and you know, making sure they're, they're big enough and healthy enough, but tomorrow's the day that uh, what's going to happen? We're going so, <laughs> to let them loose into the timber. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, done rounding them all back up by Friday. <laughs> we'll see what happens. You can only hope. <laughs> then you've got the cattle are in two different groups. Yeah. And one group is the mamas yep. and, and uh, heifers, all the girls, basically. And um, what's going on this time of year? And I know it's it's June, and this is kind of weird, but what do we have going on right now? So we're calving right now with our flurd, we call it. We got our, our sheep and our, our cows together. And the ewes are all done lambing now, but the cows are still calving. And 
And so it's just kind of neat to see uh, you got lambs and you got calves out there all running around together. You know, that's one thing uh, I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit more about is calving unassisted. I think as you're looking at that and you're growing this herd, having them be able to calve unassisted is kind of a big deal. Talk a little bit about what that looks like and why that's so important. Well, it's never perfect. Uh, We'll start with that. Okay. So if your goal is to have every pregnancy be be successful, then calving unassisted is probably not for you. In three calving seasons, we've lost one mom, and uh, we do lose some calves. Now, we've had some a couple stillbirths this year, so we, we need to analyze what's, what's going on there, but uh, we've been fortunate with really no backwards calves and good size calves too, so uh, it's real key on the, the selection of the genetics to make sure we're your goal is not having big show calves, right? So if you're you're trying to unassisted pop out one that's over 100 pounds, that's a that's a little difficult, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So our goal isn't, and I'm I'm going to talk more on the philosophy side, but I'm going to let the guys talk more on the the day to day management side here. But the goal isn't having the biggest steer in the shortest amount of time. Our goal is to be able to raise the most meat pounds per acre. So an animal consumes 3% of its weight every day. But if it finishes, fully finishes, weighing 1,200 pounds, okay, I can get, you know, three 1,200-pound animals for a total of 3,600 pounds, you know, or I can get, you know, two and a quarter, 15 or 1,600-pound steers. So, you know, you look at the total meat pounds harvested, you can get more out of fewer animals. So that's part of what our goal is, is to not, we, we don't, if we're having, you know, 600-pound weans, that doesn't do us a whole lot of good, okay? We, we, need, we need animal count uh, times the pounds uh, to, to make that happen is, is kind of our goal. But into the unassisted calving, when you, when you show up in the field, and I, I know this is kind of counter- it's it taking you a while to get over this, right, Austin? As far as you see a cow off to the side having a calf, and what's what just what do you want to do instantly? So, so my instinct, coming from a more conventional style of farming, it was no problem. Just to, if you see one, she's kind of struggling, bring her in, pull the calf, you know. So my instinct is when I see some legs sticking out and she's not having that calf, is to go over there, stick my hands in there, and get that calf out. But thankfully. I don't have to do that anymore. It's pretty incredible. They'll they'll have them calves in sometimes five, ten minutes. I mean, I, I've seen them just start pushing, and that calf comes right out. It's just amazing to see how fast that that some of these cows are calving. And then there's there's you know there's other ones that an hour they get they have their calf, but you know I I have not pulled a single calf this whole year. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. And really, we haven't lost any any calves or any moms from unassisted. Calving. Yeah. It's been related to, we had a couple issues this year that we have yet to diagnose what yeah. that causes. But now, what will we do, and, and JR, this is, this is to you here, what will we do now when we've got those two that uh, had, had that issue? So the genetics is, this is something that, to say it's a passion to be understatement. I, Monty can probably attest, I love this stuff. So... We, we will cull them, actually. So our heifers calve unassisted, too. So it's not like we just have a herd full of small mama cows. I mean... In fact, this year, what is the number of first calf heifers out there? Probably a third? 
Yes. I'm really choosy about the genetics, and if they have a stillborn, I even get to the point where some of these calves, if they get scours, that's some of the nutrients in the colostrum. That's a call situation. So if I lose a calf to scours, I will still call that mother. And that's um, we're in the situation where we are with some of this direct marketing that we don't lose everything at a sale barn when we do that we can make some hamburger and you know get some money back on that so it's not it's not a horrible loss either so um it makes a decision of calling a little easier too so that's very nice and the other thing we've done uh talked about too is with the high demand that we have right now is if we do have a situation where we lose one now these these calves that were heifers that, that we lost the two calves they'll they'll go and become jerky and Mm-hmm. beef sticks and stuff like that but the cows who are calving you know we just won't reproduce that in other Correct. words if they have a heifer calf that heifer calf will go with the finishing group and we just won't retain those genetics in there we'll keep the cow to keep giving us numbers but that will not become part of the replacement herd correct so yeah if she if she has something that we don't like we'll have beef but if she loses that calf i mean she's gone though too so that's really important to us you know, you get a good base and you can move forward with this really nicely and then you have, really have something. And, you know, the other things we're looking into um, with the epigenetics is our own homegrown bulls. I mean, that that's a, a very interesting avenue you can go down to. So we're really trying to pick the right genetics of bulls so we're, it'll get to the point to where we don't even have to buy in our own bulls and keep the genetics and breeding on tight. And we found, anecdotally, we haven't had enough evidence yet, but... We just got their first five animals back from the processor. One of those five was a steer calf that was born here. Came here from uh, Gabe Brown. We actually bought his uh, British white cow herd to get started. And it was born here across my grandma's house. And that calf went in and was finished. And I just was looking at the marbling last night on those ribeyes. And they would they would grade upper choice, if not prime, and finished you know, had a 680-pound uh, hanging weight, uh, but a 1,230-pound uh, live weight. So, I mean, that, that ratio is really good for grass-fed, and then the finish was awesome. So we haven't seen that before on steers that we buy in. Mm-hmm. So epigenetics refers to environmental effect and on genetic expression, and those animals that are being born here and are being reared here have some interesting we, we are we are getting so that one steer you're talking about it's homegrown mm-hmm. it finished out in 24 months mm-hmm. the ones we're buying in are 27 28 29 months to hit the same rate so and a lot of that's the management and we are lucky enough with our cover crops that we have some high energy great feed and that's another great thing about the cover crops is we you talk about unfair advantages where, you know, we're not stuck with the perennial pastures. We can get them out on some great stuff, which that's what our steers are on right now. And that's how we get a great finish to our steers. Okay. So now talking about cover crops, that's one of the things we're trying to do is integrate the livestock onto cropland. And I think it, we, we are actually measuring the weight of each animal individually as they move from field to field. So they'll be on a cover crop, especially ahead of corn planting or ahead of soybean planting maybe 45 days at the most, typically 30 to 45 days, then we move the whole herd again. So it's a lot of uh, post-pounding, wire rolling, unrolling, moving exercise because we have to keep them moving, right? Because we're going to no-till plant into there. No cheating allowed. We can't come in and and till it up because we we messed up, you know, leaving a big mess. So we, we have to keep moving. 
but share with people what kind of gain we got this spring on just, we had a field that was volunteer wheat. Okay. It wasn't anything fancy, just, just plain volunteer wheat. The, the average daily gain and we were over there. How long we were over at uh, Rogers place? 22, 26 days. And, uh, we were hitting three pounds of daily gain without breaking a sweat. And that, and that includes the shrink yeah. that you're going to get from that day of move in there, mm-hmm. which you that, always get some significant shrink. So that's... Uh, yeah, we scale and scale every field, and, and that's that's been some of the greatest part, too, is you know I've never been a part of a, a team that does that, so there's some real data there that we can take in and see what we're doing wrong, especially with our cover crop mixes. You can see what mm-hmm. we're lacking and stuff, too, so that's a lot of... And you'll see different animals perform differently in different fields, too. I mean, some will have a maybe a two-pound gain. Another one will have a five-pound gain in that same period of time. It just depends on, you know, where they're at and how they're growing and developing physiologically. That, that's another genetics thing, which I get back to that a lot because I really research a lot. But some cattle can know how to use each forage better to even themselves out in their rumen. So... Um, that's another genetic you can look at or trait that you can look at that they're learning from the mother, you know, when they're still in the womb. So some animals know how to use each kind of forage better and what they need and, you know, take a little of this or that and they need a little more fiber or whatnot too. Austin Collins, I'll have you visit a little bit about what we're doing out there when we are dealing with all these diverse uh, cover crop mixes and we see uh, just changes over time. Like if we have a frost event or as the crop matures, we, we implemented a new program last year uh, that's a free choice mineral program. So there's uh, we have this box that we tow around the pasture that has uh, salt on both sides, but then there's 12 different mineral mixes from you know selenium, manganese, magnesium, vitamins, and all these types of things that the cow can choose. And some of the work that Dr. Fred Provenza is doing, um, he did research that cattle know what they need to eat and, and they can they can pick and choose based on their needs. But talk to us a little bit, Austin, about the, the mineral system that we're using and the variants that you see and, and just how that works. So the free choice mineral, I think there's 14 different kinds of minerals. And I never knew that cows would choose what they want and they would know what they needed. And I, I think it's just amazing. The first year I, I was here and we grazed 226 for the first time, the, the cattle absolutely just hammered iodine. I was putting in a bag every every other day because they were going through it so much. And I think that's just amazing because the next field we were on, they were going through like magnesium, something completely different. And what do we use, and how does that mineral system work out there in the field, and and how do you move it around and such? The 14 mineral, it's it's on this sled, and we pull it every day uh, with a chain with our UTV, and it works really great, so we can move it anywhere we want. Usually we try to have it between the water and the oiler. We have the water, oiler, and then the mineral, because they will always want to go to the mineral, and then the oiler's in the middle just so they have that access to it so that way when they're walking by they have a chance to go by the oiler mm-hmm. to put uh, permethrin on right mm-hmm. for flight control <laughs> everybody's like no 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 jr go ahead and share what what do we use instead of permethrin permethrin is an insecticide that's used for fly control on cattle i don't know about you but i'd rather have salt and pepper on my steaks instead of insecticide so talk to us a little bit about what what we use instead Essential oils is about the best way I could describe it. It's a uh, it's organic certified and it has to be reapplied daily since it's a little more natural. So we have this oiler scratcher that is either on a on a sled that we can move daily during the winter or during the summer. It actually attaches to our 
mobile shades, which mm-hmm. that's a whole other avenue we can talk about later on, possibly. And uh, Yeah, so there's not trees out in the middle no, of cropland? No, there's land? no trees. We don't have to oh. farm around trees. It's great. <laughs> so, it's, so we have mobile trees. Yeah, we yes. have mobile tra- trees, which have its great benefits of, you know, moving nutrients and everything around. So this oiler's there, and there's a tank on top, so I, cattle want to scratch, so we basically give them a scratching post at puts the oil on them when they scratch so that's about halfway through the paddock so they we move them around that way it's not all up by the water so they're actually out grazing evenly across the entire paddock too is the goal we're trying to get out so that oil the essential oils on there not only does it smell like they're having a spa day uh, it repels the flies and when we did that prior to doing that we had a problem with pink eye yes we had several got antibiotic shots because of pink eye and then once they get an antibiotic shot then we can no longer sell that under our grateful grace brand because we have an antibiotic free claim on there and so when we did the essential oils to basically repel the flies and then also when flies get really bad we'll put fly tape you know on some buckets under the shade just to catch them right Mm. but we haven't even seen that this year no we haven't seen that uh yesterday we got kind of our first rainy like humid day flies and we're kind of in some bottom ground by a creek they're a little thicker but two very year, minimal two years ago yeah, before two years. we did this it was just their backs were just solid flies mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it was uh, quite a thing and then the other thing we do too is when we have really wet and soggy conditions you know when you have foot rot or, or conditions that are conducive to foot rot what do you what's your typical conventional cure for foot rot get right? a shot so we first off the best thing we can do is this rotational grazing for foot to prevent it. I mean, keep them dry, give them a bigger paddock so they can spread out and get up. Um, if you really have to, get them out of bottom ground like that. That's your that's your number one way to prevent it. And I mean, it's management. that's a beautiful, yeah, the management, that's a beautiful thing about it is they're not stuck in one lot or pasture. That's, you know, we can, we have the option to move them around and then bring them back. And then if it does get bad or we're worried about it, um, there's a foot bath that we put right in front of the water trough. And, and we it, set gates. And we set gates. So to where they, they have, have to, to walk through mm-hmm. the foot bath. So yeah. we basically make an alleyway to the water trough, and then they have to step in that. And that has... Um, copper that sulfate. Copper, keeps the hoof plenty dry. And, you know, we just... That's usually if we start to see issues. And the nice part is, is that, again, that was completely mobile. Mm-hmm. So the foot bath had to move with the water and... Austin, you got to do that. It's a it's a load of fun. And last year when it was so wet and rainy, you know, it was it was hard to avoid it. But you know, we set that up on top of a hill and getting the copper sulfate out to it and stuff, it was quite a challenge. But that extra management then, you know, kept their kept their feet healthy to where we didn't have to administer any shots. And then the other thing I think that's really helped too is the free choice mineral you were talking about. We've got what they need when they need it. And, and that those kind of issues have gone away. So really, the only thing we're adding is essential oils and mineral. Yes. Everything else is planted cover crops or managed grazing of, of the land. Exactly. And the other great thing about the minerals is it's because they're choosing what they need is because what the land is lacking. And they don't use all the minerals. So it passes through them and into the manure. And so any excess mineral that they don't use goes back to the lands, which is giving the land what it was lacking in the first place. So the reality is, is as the diversity increases at the farm that you were talking about, Austin, and, and the iodine consumption will go away. And then also because the extra iodine was out there, you're fertilizing with iodine with uh, a four-legged fertilizer wagon. And and over time, that will will tend to to balance itself. Exactly. And we've seen that this year. The iodine consumption is piddly, and I don't think that has to do with them. 
they didn't poop every square foot by any means, but it has to do with the fact that the plants are getting stimulated again by cattle. Exactly. Our, our mineral use at first, I'm sure Monty can, can attest to that. How long can we keep doing this? Uh, I mean, we were pouring bags and bags of this stuff. And, and finally, I think towards the other summer, it just stopped. And now we might replace a bag every few weeks to maybe a month. I mean, their, their mineral consumption has gone down completely because they are getting it from their forage. So now, Austin Taylor, ask you a little bit about water. We kind of joked around, JR, uh, me, and, and Austin Collins, we joked around about how he didn't have the opportunity to work with garden hoses. This year, we had two groups, and one of the groups was um, we did have to service with garden hoses, and the other one was with our hose reel that he'll, he'll tell you how that works. Talk to us about how you do the water moves every day, then after that, set and fence and such. So prior to coming here, you know, I just had my, my normal stationary waters that you had to clean them yeah you just had to clean them that, that was it and you know in the winter check make sure they're not froze over so coming here i i got a an awakening to a whole different uh style of watering livestock so we have this hose reel that monty was talking about that uh we have set up with a booster pump and in a 1,500-gallon water tank and 2,000-foot-long hose. So we can stretch that out to where the, the livestock are grazing, and it hooks up to a, a tote that we've created that uh, is double-sided so that it's at the, the size for the sheep to, to get into, and then we have a bigger one so the cows can get into so that they never run out of water because that booster pump is refilling every time that somebody's in there drinking the water. And that's, of course, a booster pump that's just mounted at the at the house that you plug into electric, right? Well, that would be nice, yes, but uh, <laughs> but no. We've, uh, we've got a solar panel on there and a couple marine batteries, and they run off of, of solar energy, which is nice because it it lowers your, your electric bill, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, it goes anywhere you want, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> Except and for you mobile. have to move it every yeah, time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why why do you have to move that water? Well, if you leave a water in one, one place, you're just going to get too much trample around that water. And, I mean, livestock are, are no uh, clean, clean eaters, I guess you could say. They, they like to splash the water around. And, and uh, if you don't move that thing every day, you're just going to have a big mess. And, Plus, when you were at, uh, like right now, they've got access to just, uh, the FLIRD has access to just about three acres yes. on average. And yep. then when we were on cover crops, it started at, I think, nine, and we finished at 16 acres. But we're not, typically, we back fence. So what does that mean when you when you back fence? And, and what that would tell you why the, the water needs to move. So so when we're back fencing, the, the livestock only have access to whatever that set number of acres is, whether it's three or, or nine, you know, depending on what they're, what kind of forage they're on. So when, you, when, you, when you've got three acres to work with and, you know, you have however many number of cattle in there, it doesn't take too long for, for a mess to, to get started there. Mm-hmm. So, so moving that water every day and, and moving that shade every day and moving that mineral every day, it, it's very important. And choosing where you do that is also choosing the areas that will probably receive the most manure. So yeah. we try to put the mineral on like crests and hillsides so that those areas that are nutrient depleted get more concentration of, of manure. And then the other thing is, too, is with that back fence, if we if we had the water in one spot, they can't get to it. So it has to move every day with them. 
And uh, you do like the, the powered hose reel. So you pull this hose reel out with the ATV, right, or yep. UTV. And then when we want to go to roll it up, there's a little Honda engine on it. Fire it up, and it just it rolls itself up. Yep. I mean, what does it take? A half an hour, 45 minutes from start to finish? I don't sit there and watch it because yeah. it's slow. But, I mean, it can roll up 2,000 foot of garden hose by itself in Less an hour. Less than an hour, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, then we're, we're yeah we're picking up the fence thing. and everything, and then and it's it, it's done. So that's that's pretty fascinating. So there's a lot of management that needs to happen. I want to talk a little bit, uh, Jr. Have you talk about how we did the flirt? I think that'll be interesting for folks to hear. Um, and flirt is a highly highly technical term. It's where you take a flock and a herd and put them together. But um, anyway, uh, talk to us a little bit about the flirt, and then also uh, the management. How do you determine three acres to nine to sixteen and pasture map and some of those type of tools that we're using? And in particular, I, I really want you to talk about the training and the steps that we went through and the time of, timing of the year that we went through to put the sheep, the dogs, and the cows all together to where everybody gets along. And then now what we're doing, which is everybody will think is absolutely unbelievable, to keep the flirt in the paddock, this is amazing. So other people, when they do it, they usually have perimeter fence, and they have the luxury of having very nice tight why, fence why bother with yeah perimeter so fence? they get it to do all money. this they get to do all the experiment there i'm doing it out on cash crop land with two strands and the next closest fence is probably minnesota so <laughs> uh so, uh so we uh so i was reading along and you know you can introduce sheep and cattle together and they just get along they might stay a little spread out but sooner or later they start to intermingle so i said let's do it because what we're learning is, you know, the more groups we have, uh, the more time it takes. So efficiency is key at this. So uh, we did. I, everybody said there are certain ways to introduce them, and I said no better way than just throw them together. So we did that. And we started <laughs> out with two wire, yep. and, the, and the sheep also had two oh, yeah. guardian so, dogs. Okay, so to rewind before that, before I was confident enough to throw them in, we used to have the sheep on electric net, which if anybody who's ever used it, they can tell everybody how much they love it, which that's complete sarcasm. So, anyways, yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't know. Electric awful. net, if it, it's like fishing line, if it can get tangled up, it definitely will. It, it's the craziest thing in the world. It works, but oh my goodness, what a pain. So, we had to train them on to, at first, I did two wires. I did three wires at first. So, this started, well, about a year ago. And we spent all last summer, probably two, or two months solid. You know, a month training them to three wire. Then we got them down to two wire. Now we're, you know, now we're in business, guys. We we got two wire, and it's great. I can unroll it off the side of my UTV. I couldn't be more tickled. So we got them trained on that. The the dogs are the hardest part to get trained on it. I mean, I can keep dogs in with two wires at 15 inches and 30 inches. And the sheep, as long as they want nothing, they're usually good. So we pushed that along, and we went through all last winter with that, and we had them all separated. And then this spring, you know... You brought the sheep up to one paddock away from the cows first yeah. to where they could see each other for a period mm -hmm. of time. And they did that for the longest time. And then finally I said, we need to pull the trigger now. We're about to start lambing and calving. And I know how motherly sometimes animals get. And I don't need them to try to run off our guardian dogs. Let's, let's just do it. So we did. We just, this spring, we went into the cover crop. We grabbed both groups and put them in together and worked like a charm. I mean, they kind of kept their separate groups at first. I mean, if you look at them now, they're completely intermingled. But everybody kind of kept their distance. But slowly over time, you saw them get together. And the way they interact is just absolutely amazing. So then when we started having lambs, 
So then I'm worried about, you know, we're doing our daily moves. Something's going to get trampled on. I mean, they will walk on pins and needles around these baby lambs, these full-grown cattle. I mean, they are so aware of their surroundings that they completely do it. And then they, you know, the dogs in them, you'd think, you know, predators, once we started calving, you know, the dogs kind of learn to stay away. But, I mean, I was, I looked over there, and there's a dog helping a you clean up a freshly uh, birthed lamb. I mean, and the ewes will run off and graze for a little bit and the dog will just lay there and you'll see like three lambs just cuddle up around our guardian dogs. It's just how they all intermingle is just absolutely amazing. So yeah, first he introduced dogs and ewes along with the cattle. That got to work and then the ewes started lambing and then that got along fine. We were okay. And then then I'm talking to Paul Brown on the phone. He's like, yeah, we never had any luck with that. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So, but fortunately it turned out all right. Uh, Different conditions, different circumstances. Then the calves, uh, the cattle started calving and I thought, oh, what's going to happen here? And then that was perfectly fine. Um, The only problem we have is Rose, the guardian dog, likes to explore the neighborhood, so she likes to get out on a regular basis. Um, She's a little bit of pain in the butt, but I don't think anything could keep her in. But other than that, then one weekend I get a text from JR when he's doing chores. He's like, eh, let's try this. And what'd you try? So I I put one strand of wire about a foot to 15 inches off the ground uh, interior. We still kept our two-wire exterior, but interior, I was like, Let's just do a flirt and one wire. I'm tired of putting up two wires, so here we go. So there's one wire a foot off the ground, and that will keep my cattle, my calves, my my ewes, my lambs, and my dogs in one strand. So we're doing one strand of fence, not even halfway up your shin, and that keeps all our livestock in. Other than baby calves that wouldn't know what a wire is, right? And it don't matter how many wires you got for them. I have never, I mean, a cow could step over this wire, Zero clear, effort. Clear her belly and just, just walk right over it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the only time I think that's happened is if a calf, she's looking for a calf. And then what the funny part is, is she comes back to the herd mm-hmm. you know, and she finds the calf. You yeah. know? So she'll you stand, don't want to do this without a perimeter, right? But, correct. But she'll find the calf and then she'll come back to the herd. Yeah, she'll come back to the herd. Uh, they respect, they only, the only time they don't respect is put it into a stressful situation like can't find your calf or like a ewe can't find her lamb. Um, but they, at that point, once they calm down, they respect it so much that they're almost scared to step back into the paddock. So you'll come out in the morning and they'll be maybe like, a, and this is usually only during calving and lambing. Once, once everybody's born and calves starting to get the gist of things, nobody usually leaves it. But you'll come back and there'll be a cow standing right there by the reel, like, all right, let me back in. I'm thirsty. Like it, they just stand right there and they wait for you in the morning and you just you literally just roll up the wire, they walk in and we're done. So and that's that's the learning curve that we had for, during calving. Once and like the lambs, they really don't do it. Now that everybody's on the ground, yeah, away we go. I mean, you just the lambs and the calves in, interact. I mean, they all play together. It's it's and if there's a lamb uh, calling for mom there, the cow will sit right there or the dog will sit right there kind of next to it until mom comes back and vice versa. All different species. Just, it's amazing. And, and it should be noted we're on the edge of a, a timber and open creeks and in a lot of the places that we go that are just great habitat for fox, coyote, and those kind of predators that uh, enjoy lamb as much as uh, our customers do. So uh, that's why we have the guardian dogs uh, with the lambs. Now, we really don't need them with the cattle, and I almost wonder if the cattle would protect the lambs uh, down the road, and that might be a future experiment. But anyway, that's that's why we're running those together, and it's fun to see those guardian dogs alert when there are coyotes. 
man, they will tear off to a corner, and there there'll be no wire that will contain them when it comes to that because their their instinct is complete. Uh, really annihilation when it comes to a predator. I think one day you found something, Taylor, and all that was left was a couple feet in the field. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I you know they'll they'll definitely protect. But then when uh, the mom or any cattle that breed of an, uh, dog just completely submissive will back off, uh, no problems. So you know a lot of this is about training. We're really every day training the animals. And, you know, getting used to a routine and how they move and, and how they interact with each other, that you have to think ahead on how you're going to do this. It's not just one day, oh, let's throw all the animals together with one wire and be good, right? This took a period of up to a year. And the, to, and the, to training, to the training of the cattle, too. We even, I mean, you, right. like, that takes time, too. You don't just grab any herd of cattle and say, here you go. I mean, that'll, and it actually doesn't take that long. It only takes about a two or three day period. And you'll find out real quick who respects and who doesn't. And obviously, we you can't keep all the honorary ones, so sometimes that happens. But yeah. we've had really good luck and haven't had to do any of that. But um, docile cattle, I mean, that's a, that's another breed. Thing. Yeah, and then, then the other thing is, too, is on your wire, they call it a hot wire for a reason, not a warm wire. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> when you have a hot wire, you have the volts through it. You, you have 10,000 volts on a hot wire. Uh, they don't like to touch it, and neither do I. Talk a little bit about the management and how we make all this happen. Uh, I referred to Pasture Map and, and doing some of the planning um, that is required for these kind of things to, to, to make this happen. Well, I don't know how we do it without Pasture Map would be kind of the first well, thing. Well, we, we, we tried, we tried. didn't we? We, and <laughs> we, we bared through, I think it was a, a total of a month, and then enough's enough. Uh, so we do that, and that's... It's got a map view, and you can put all your herds and how many pounds. And, and actually, they just come out with the new deal, and I was almost late for this interview because I was playing with the new toys on Pasture Map. But anyways, you can GPS and, and draw your paddocks out so you can keep them accurate, and it's GPS location. So you can see where you're at. You can follow this line to draw accurate size paddocks for what you're looking for. And the way we pick it out is I just go out to the pasture, and I start measuring forage and see how much you know, how much forage we have and the height and how thick it is and everything like that and um, come up with how much we want to leave behind. And, you know, I'm always out there ahead of schedule before we ever show up to a pasture or anything like that and figuring that out. And then I come up with our paddock size, which the great thing is it's never perfect, so you're always on the move, which you can adjust that with this app and uh, figuring out how much they need and how much, you know, how much forage we have and how much to leave behind. So... Um, well, like they say, there's an app for that, right? Yeah. You know, there's an app for that, too. I but, think that's cool that as we look at all of the different things that you're implementing, you're implementing excellent management practices, but you're utilizing technology in all different phases. You're using technology for the movement. You're using technology in doing your water and your shade. And, you know, when we look at all this management and technology that goes into it, it really amplifies the example of you guys really doing this for diversity. And, you know, you talk about stacked incomes, Monty, where you're stacking enterprises. And I think back to Tom Cotter talking about how he had a a lot of opportunity when things would change. And I hear you guys all talking about that, like, oh, we, we discovered this, so we made this decision. And so you get a lot of flexibility in that. And, and that all comes from having this diversity that's going on. So I wonder if you guys will talk about what that looks like. Well, I'll share about the, 
one of the reasons we're doing it is rather than just harvesting one cash crop per acre per year, it's really an initiative I'm trying to help figure out for all of our customers is how do we harvest uh, some beef and then corn or some beef and then soybeans or how do we harvest wheat and soybeans or how do we right now we've got corn growing on 60 inch rows with cover crops planted and because of the single wire training that the sheep have had we're going to attempt to graze sheep inside of a standing cornfield pre-harvest so which the water technology and the training to the single wire will hopefully enable but again it's a it's a mindset of you know like jr is saying he got uh, watched some youtube videos and got to thinking about things and said let's just try it you know what have you got to lose other than maybe a few hours of you know wrangling everybody back into the paddock right but i i think that's that's one of the things that we're we're trying to do with this and and i JR, since you got the mic there, what, what do you think on some of the things that, that you see? And, and maybe expand upon Kim's question a little bit. Maybe what's been, you think, your greatest challenge that you've run into, you know, and maybe the greatest uh, thing that you've learned, you know, or greatest reward uh, from, from the system that you've seen over time? And, and you know, what, how has it changed your thinking about, you know, raising livestock? First of all, the stacked income, and we haven't touched on chickens. I mean, we haven't. I mean, we have laying hens and meat birds and all that. And you know, the the meat birds are going across the same acreage with, and especially the the laying hens. You know, they can fall right behind the the flurd. So you know, that's another stacked and on the same acre. I mean, or if you will. So I mean, that's when it comes to stack incomes. I mean, we that's a that's huge too and then uh i guess the challenges is uh, a lot of my days thought about ahead of you know the next step and all that so that that's huge where's everybody going um do we you know have the land base it figured out i guess if you will or what kind of forage do we have and all that stuff is uh and you're talking about the hay so that's a huge challenge keeping everybody healthy and things are a lot more simple than you know, we don't have to run everybody through and vaccinate them. We don't have to, you know, make sure everybody gets their antibiotic or whatever this or that. I mean, if with good practices, all this is unnecessary. So, I mean, keeping them moving and healthy and not having them, you know, given that the land plenty of, uh, I heard the other day call it rest. Well, not just rest, recovery. Make sure the land's recovered before you come back to it. Um, you can give it rest, but if it's not recovered fully yet, then that, you know, that doesn't count. That is a big part and watching everything just kind of get in sync and it all kind of makes sense in my head. And, you know, you look at it, how great the soil or everything's growing. I mean, at the very least, you, you know, you see your, you know, you, people go the, the soil health and all that stuff. Uh, you know, if you want to get real practical with it, it you look at your, your, uh, stocking rate, you know, you can increase that drastically very quickly so um i guess that's my reward too is you know we're we're getting row crop back and cattle out on there and we're able to see you know a lot of farmers talk about their yield i'm part of some of that discussion but i hear it's great things over there in the crop team of you know the the yield increase of where we've had the cattle without destroying the land helping it so high management which we've been talking about but i think the greatest thing is just 
being able to build this up to where other people want to take it on. And I think that's what I'm very excited about to where it's not just who are these guys on Botton's farm doing this crazy idea. You start, I mean, the interaction with your neighbor, every, you know, usually guys are just planting their stuff. And if you don't see each other at the coffee shop, you're actually starting to do business again. I mean, the local church doing lunches for our tours and stuff like that. I think that's the community building back up and, rural areas is huge everybody's trying to drive to town to go to work and if we can bring that back out that would be the biggest reward we're not building a farm we're building a community so that's that's how i feel yeah i think that's one of those unintended benefits mm-hmm. is uh seeing that working with the neighbors again and and those kind of things austin taylor you know i'll ask you too same thing what you know what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen you know with this management style and and what's some of the the biggest rewards and maybe the coolest thing that you've seen here uh, in, in your time with us. I can start off by saying that the technology is, I mean, it can be uh, a challenge at some times. Uh, I was never really around a lot of this technology that, that I use now on a day-to-day basis. I mean, something as simple as a, as a battery dying that uh, is connected to one of our, our solar panels. If it's, a, if it's a rainy day and that solar panel's not charging a battery that's running my water, my cattle are going to be without water, and, and you can't have that. So so technology can be a challenge when, when you're doing this, but you always have to have a, a backup plan, you know. Some of the rewards that that I've found is I get to wake up every day and do what I love. I, I get to go out, you know, be with some livestock. I'm outside. It's always good on the good days, but but there's the bad days too, you know, when it's raining. Or you mean you got to move them when it's snowing, or when it's you know when pouring rain like yeah, yesterday. When it's when it's, when it's <laughs> negative negative twenty, or you know if it if it rains three inches, you know I'm out there with these these animals and you know making sure that that they're managed and surviving out there. What do you think is maybe one of the coolest things you've seen? Well, one of the coolest things I guess I could say that I've seen is is uh, watching, you know, JR kind of talked about it earlier, I guess, but uh, these, these, these cows and these, these sheep being intermingled together and, and the way that they, they care for one another. One day I was, I was out there and, you know, there's this 1,100-pound cow laying there and there's a lamb just looking it right in the eye, just just laying there with it, and I thought that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. How a cow can be motherly to a completely different species. Yeah, I think that's just just neat to see on a day to day basis. Yeah, and then you know, and you see the life that's brought too when you're out in the pasture, the birds that are are flying around the the herd, and you remember two two six when we first moved in there and we were working on that, there was ticks like everywhere. And we had a few ticks this spring, but nothing because the cattle are restoring the diversity and encouraging the birds and all these kind of things to, to eat it and take care of it. It's, it's been amazing. And the grass there. Okay. So we grazed it last year, seeing the changes in the grass. I just, you know, it was kind of, looked like a uh, just a real thin stand of brome grass and now where are they at today i mean there's grass beautiful. above their head yeah beautiful green tall grass that 
Where'd I mean, it come from? <laughs> just out of thin air. It yeah. just you create the conditions and it comes <laughs> yeah, back, right? Yeah. So that's that's great. Austin Collins, how about you? What's some of the biggest challenges you've run into doing it this way? Some of the biggest rewards? Maybe what's the coolest thing you've seen? So I'd probably say the the biggest challenges that that we face is when we move to different properties, we have little to no infrastructure. I'd, I'd say I think only maybe two or three properties have a, a well there where we can hook up uh, the reel and the hose. So we've spent a long time figuring all that out. So having to build a booster pump and solar panels and bringing a 1,500-gallon tank so the animals have access to water at all times, that's what I would say would be the biggest challenge is, is figuring all that out, and I think we've done a great job at at new new ideas and, and techniques. Moving on to my favorite thing that I've seen working here is probably order fulfillment. So working directly with the, the customer, it makes me really happy, I guess. I like talking to people. And bringing that back, you know, you don't, you don't see that a lot these days where the farmer is selling directly to the customer and talking directly to the customer. I think it, it needs to happen more. So It's kind of neat because, you know, like I said, when, when Gary takes a load of corn to the, to the ethanol plant, you know what they tell him? What's that? Pull ahead. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, you know, just last night we had a customer call with the you know, new pre-order that came in, and he says, top sirloins normally aren't that great, and I've had top sirloin grass-fed from everybody you can imagine, and it's grisly and it's tough and just never liked it. And he says, yours are amazing. He says, I don't know what you do different, but it's just great, you know. And, you know, we had a little, little kid uh, – wrote a card a thank you card you know during during quarantine thank you for what you're doing and stuff so you know when taylor when you're out there in the rainstorm or collins when you're out there in the rainstorm snowstorm jr why did that uh, you know heifer turn around and run away you know whatever else that we got going on that just doesn't ever seem to work right you know there's people who appreciate what we're doing and they're telling us more than just pull ahead so it's 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 kind of fun. Well, I think we've learned that all grass-fed beef is not created equal. <laughs> That's uh... and the interesting part is, is you know what the difference really is? There's only one difference in the quality of grass-fed meat, and that's management. It is all management because it's it's grass. So it's your choosing how to move them, how to water them, how to mineral, how to shade, the oil. All these things we talked about today were all management techniques. Mm-hmm. And it, it took a long time to, to come up with all these things, you know. And really, the reason we're doing it is just like when we started with, um, you know, on planter nutrition. And when we started with cover crops, we did everything at our farm first in order to prove out the problems and, and come, come with a solution that's ready to roll for our customers. So, you know, that's what we're looking at here. And if anyone is interested, you know, we certainly can can uh, work with uh, folks and send some of our team members to your farm, do an evaluation, consider what your resources are and what it would look like for you to integrate it. And, you know, I can certainly have those high-level discussions with you. And then when it comes to the nut and bolts of every day, you know, between JR and, and the Austins here, we can certainly consider how we could be a part of training your team to make that happen. So rather than taking three to four years like it's taken us to get to where we are, we can do that in three to four weeks. So, you know, that's that's pretty exciting. So integrating livestock, bringing livestock back to the land is our, is our theme of what we're trying to do, and it's all because of soil health. 
Now, looking at these things, and JR, you alluded to, we're seeing some positive things. I saw a 13 bushel increase last year on corn where we grazed versus where we didn't. You know, the downforce map wouldn't tell you that because it was wet and rainy and there was a lot of cattle traffic. We're like, oh, Lord, what are we doing? We're planting into concrete. But it came through fine. Uh, you know, similar results this year, planting the soybeans there. But the soybean stand looks great. Weed control's phenomenal. So there's been lots of other things that we're still evaluating on the crop side, but it certainly has not been a negative. How much of a positive it is, we don't know yet, but it has not been a negative. And I think if you cannot have a negative and improve soil health and get an additional revenue stream, and like you were saying, JR, with stacked enterprises, not just with crop and beef, but with crop beef and chicken or crop lamb and chicken, I think that's that's an opportunity. But in your your view, I'll start with you, Austin. In your view, what do you see the farm looking like in a 5, 10, 15 years from now based on what we're doing today? Uh, well, I think JR said earlier that we're expanding every year more and more. So the sales are increasing. So I, I, I think we'll be able to increase the size of those herds, you know, with, and that goes back to without the customer, we wouldn't be able to do that. So that's awesome. I'd love to see a, a building at 226. That'd be awesome to put our stuff in. We do have a building there, but we're using it for hay right now. But I think we're going to be increasing herd sizes, putting up infrastructure. All right. Austin Taylor, what do you what do you see happening in the next 5, 10, 15 years as we uh, continue down this path of integrating livestock on the land? In the future, I could I could really see our herds growing like, like Collins was saying. But another thing that I think I could see from our farm is is bringing a community in and and creating more more enterprises off of what you know you've already created you know maybe having our own slaughterhouse at some point which would um, you know help with with the direct market you know if you can if you can do more things yourself I, I think that would that would just really help the community that we're in so you know like you said there certainly are opportunities for being able to process our own meats, right? Because right now, today, it's a two-hour drive to our uh, beef and lamb pork processor and a three-plus-hour drive to our chicken processor. And people are asking for specific ways of them being handled. You know, we, we get quite a few requests of, I can't have chlorine, it affects me. Or, you know, other ways that we can do specialty processing that just isn't available. So, yeah, having those opportunities like you were saying, is certainly within the realm of possibilities because, you know, as we bring the livestock back to the land, you're creating more revenue per acre. And as you create more revenue per acre, you're creating more job opportunities per acre and and more, you know, sustainability opportunities per acre. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. JR, what do you see happening next 5, 10, 15 years of livestock integration and and what, what this could mean for uh, future not only of our farm but of, of farms everywhere across the country. I'm glad you said not just our farm. I mean that was the first thing I was going to say. And to say I don't think I I think about this daily. That's uh, just the way I built. I dream and that's what I like to do. And I see this not just our farm. I I don't want to see all of our neighbors around struggling with corn and soybeans. I I I don't see this farm growing. I see the community growing. And uh, the sooner we start thinking like that or the neighbors start thinking like that, I think a lot more successful we're going to be as a community. So 15 years now, I, gosh, I hope I'm sitting there 
talking livestock to every neighbor that I can see. So, but not just that. I mean, as it grows, we're going to need more. If you, you know that bring, you know, you can bring your kids back home. They're not getting out of college and saying, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. It doesn't make money. Why would I come back? So, you know, show that there's profit to be made. You know, you, you have to, to raise a family or anything like, you, you know, you have to, you have to make some money. So as you know, it's the right thing to do and that's great. And I agree with it hundred percent, but it's got to make sense. And, uh, watching all these guys, you know, struggle and, you know, worried about being the guy who loses the farm, you know, you know, what's everybody going to think of me? And, you know, that's, that's one thing that they don't ask of farmers. It's not just what they do. It's who they are. I mean, you're, you're getting down to the ground level of them. So I see this growing to where not only is the farm growing, community is growing. Hopefully we get to the point where, you know, you start seeing businesses in town out of necessity need to come back because there's a population here that needs, you know, a tire shop, another diner, stuff like that. Um, hopefully with some of our meats in it, of course. But anyways, uh, as it grows, that's where I see this all going is not just our farm growing. I see the community and how we can help them and they can help us and we all get together and provide healthy, holistic food for ourselves. I mean, let's feed ourselves first so we're not going to the grocery store every time. Let's let's grow our own food, guys. And I think really when you look at the, the journey here over the last four years, when we first did it, people are like, what in the world are you doing? You know, it was pretty negative, like, boy, he's really lost his nut now. And then now in this last year, think about what we've done. We've custom cover crop seeded for uh, two farmers that are using cover crops for grazing now and or for haying. That never been heard of before. You know, uh, another farmer just, we planted for them. They used their land roller and all those kind of techniques that we had. They rented from us just to I mean, it's certainly not a profitable enterprise in the rental business, but it's helping them get started. Had another neighbor that we planted cover crops for last year because of the rainy year in a prevent plant, and then we grazed on his ground, and he was great with it, thought it was wonderful. Then they no-till planted soybeans into it. Looks great. So we've got more and more of those kind of interactions going on, and you're right. It's going to take an army of people, and it's going to take a, a large group of farmers to continue to fuel the momentum to, to make this happen. So I think it's gone from a ha-ha to what are they up to to, huh, how could I get started? So And, and really in four years, that's a very short time frame for, for something like that in, in ag to happen. Exactly. And, you know, when people come and ask, you know, a lot of how, a lot of why too, but a lot of how. You know, we're talking about putting up and taking down these fences and three days to put up and one day to take down. This isn't just the 20-acre backyard, guys. We're talking 200 acres. And that's interior fence too, split in half. So 200-acre fields, essentially. And seven miles of fence. Seven miles of fence rolled up in one day. Yeah. So the logistics of it all, the water, we're not... We're efficient with it. We're bringing the water with us. We have the water trailer, and then behind that is the four-wheeler trailer. It's a train, but we're there there once and back. That turns some heads going yeah, down the that road. that turns heads. So <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's efficient, too. I mean, that, this isn't, you know, we're spending all day doing this. So we are, but not just that one enterprise. So that, you know, efficiency is key to this. So um, we're not just running around here trying to make everything perfect. It's got to make money, <laughs> and that's the key to the, all this. And at the end of the day, you know, you can feel good about it, but the farmer can't make a living to provide for his family. It's kind of hard to 
get on that basis. But yeah, Kim, there's there's definitely some unintended benefits of what we're doing. Not only are we seeing it in the soil health thing, but um, you know these three gentlemen right here wouldn't be maybe even involved in farming, or you know have a job opportunity at our farm because we just how can you how can you justify it? But you know that's a great unintended benefit of of being able to do livestock in this manner. So. Yeah, it's 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 neat to see all the things that are happening, and it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it, it is hard work. It's hot days, it's cold days, it's rain, it's snow, it's every day. You know, flies, mosquitoes. Yes, that is true, but it's it's great to see what the animals are doing to the land, how they interact, what the customers think. Tours or customers come out, and they are just enamored and love what we're doing. And, it, you know, it's providing an opportunity uh, for others. So, yeah, it's interesting what, what integrating livestock back to the land can do. It's connecting everyone back to the land. And I think that's what's key is that not only are you providing a profitable environment for your own farm and for your family and for your legacy, but as JR and, and both Austin said, you know, we're building community. I think now more than ever, that's so important. And so if we can bring people together and, you know, food is a great way to communicate, to show you care about somebody when you prepare a meal, it's everybody coming together. And I think that it's just a great way to get people involved. And, and I think the consumer appreciates that. And the more that we understand about the work that we're doing, how we're making these changes and the effects that we're having without having to be forced to make these impacts on our soil. We're choosing to be ahead of that game so that we can control our destiny a little better uh, instead of someone else telling us what our destiny is going to be. And this is all principle five of soil health principles, and that's integrating livestock. And, you know, it's the toughest principle to apply, but it's the, it's the principle that has the greatest effect on soil health, has the greatest effect on community health, has the greatest effect on human health, and has the greatest effect on ecosystem health. And I know we've got a lot of customers we've worked with for a long time, and we've got you into cover crops, and I know you've heard me talking about Principle 5 for a while, and you've been kind of like, leave me alone, Monty, leave me alone, I'm doing my thing. But i got to tell you, we've got the investment and the time in it, and I'm not going to let you off the hook here pretty soon. We're going to be doing livestock, and we're going to be doing it in a big way, and you're going to be a part of it, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to create those communities everywhere that we get to work, and we're going to provide safe, healthy food for, for everybody who connects with us. So I'm looking forward to it, and we're, we're here to help make that happen. Uh, we're getting, we're, I would say, um, Jar, would you agree we're probably 90, 95% of the way there and what we need to know knowledge base-wise for, for livestock? I mean, we're never going to be perfect, but, I mean, we've slayed some some big monsters yes call let's do this i mean where whenever i'm at ag emerge so so how do i get into it do it what they just kind of look at me weird you just gotta jump in and let's do this i mean obviously we we jumped in without a mentor i mean we had plenty of mentors don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but you know we risked a lot of it but let's get in give us a call let's do this and we'll help i 
nothing make me more excited to see if we can't do it somebody else's help somebody else do this journey and we've had a few people from Maggie Merge that, that put livestock in almond trees uh, and I think there's lots of opportunities in other crops to make it happen too so anyway I really appreciate it guys I know that it's uh, they need to get going because on our schedule the chickens got to move and the cows got to move and they they have to move every day so we need to let these guys make the magic happen Kim yeah, well, I appreciate uh, getting to sit across from them. I've eaten the fruits of their labor. Uh, or the meats of their the labor. The meats of their labor. Yeah. So I greatly appreciate it. And uh, just glad to have you guys in here with a real honest conversation about some of the tough stuff, some of the great stuff. The, what I see, the smiles on your faces and the happiness that you have for doing this work. Uh, it's great to have you here. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you.